Like many of you, I'm not a big fan of painkillers. I successfully recovered from two minor surgeries in my life without having to take painkillers. But I'm glad they do exist in the dental office because there I'm a complete and total wimp. (laughs) Several years ago, I was in the dental office and they wanted to repair one of my teeth. And he's like, well, it's, it's not a very deep cavity, so I could just go fast. And I'm like, okay, just go fast. <laughs> it was one of the worst decisions I ever made. I almost jumped right out of my chair and through the ceiling above me. And I said, you gotta stop, man. You gotta give me some, give me some painkillers, the best ones you have. And so I had to wait around and he had to put the injection in. And I gotta say, I thank the Lord. I thank the Lord for painkillers at the dental office and so should you, just don't get addicted. You should thank the Lord for painkillers. We live in a world where there's so many blessings, technological blessings. You know, back in the day, they didn't have these sorts of things. You've probably seen pictures of, in, in, in the movies of people on Civil War era battlefields getting a leg or something sawed off. No painkillers, just bite on a stick. But we have the advantage of having painkillers and we're thankful for that. But there are certain kinds of pain that no potion can ever fix. Spiritual pain, emotional pain. The kind of pain that comes upon us when life is tumultuous. Maybe we're experiencing economic loss or we've just had a a spouse, a child, a good friend, a colleague at work, die. Or we've been betrayed by a friend, been falsely accused, been religiously persecuted, or find ourselves feeling relationally isolated, just unable to build meaningful relationships. These are the kinds of things that painkillers cannot fix. Not to say that people don't take drugs or go to therapy or head off to a retreat or have a memorial ceremony or attend a support group or get financial coaching or change their diets in order to fix some sort of medical problem. People do put Band-Aids on the pain that they experience in life. These things just mask the symptoms. They don't necessarily fix or solve or resolve the cause of the pain in the first place. And so our pain remains. And in a painful world, in keeping with the video testimony we saw today, there are many, many people that would say the exact same thing. I lost it all. I had no place to turn. Nobody could solve my problems. No words could solve it. No drugs, no retreats, no therapist could solve My problem, but in the word of God, one of the beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we ask the question, what really relieves and ultimately fixes our pain? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not pastor talk. That's not just words for the sake of words. The gospel properly understood relieves and ultimately fixes our pain, the gospel of Jesus Christ, those five words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
is the ultimate solution. So today and on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, we're going to preach a sermon series called The Power of Resurrection Life. The resurrection of Christ, which is going to be the primary focus of our teaching today, is core and central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest pain, the greatest enemy is death. And because Christ conquered that, he can conquer all lesser painful things in life as well. The gospel offers a timeline for when pain will ultimately end. The gospel offers a guarantee that life is getting better for those of us that know the Lord. The gospel reminds us that there's a king that is still on his throne. I think we sang that today. And he has and is redeeming us. And the gospel enables us to be fearless in the face of death and all lesser evils and challenges, again, because of what Christ Jesus has accomplished. So join me in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the epistles of Paul, meaning the letters that Paul wrote. Paul was a apostle, a traveling evangelist, a church planter, and he would often write messages to the church in Corinth, which was a very challenging place to live if you were a Christian. It was north of the Mediterranean. They say there were literally, literally more gods, more statuettes and figurines in Corinth than there were people. So there was a lot of different demonic influences there, satanic influences, a lot of different worldviews converging, a lot of different false teaching that people were exposed to. And so Paul wrote some of the, the longest letters of the New Testament to the church in Corinth. In fact, we have two of them in, this, in the New Testament, but we believe that he wrote at least five because of the various references he wrote about previous letters and describing things he'd written previously that aren't included in these two books. So he probably wrote several letters to, to the Corinthian church, but these two were ultimately canonized. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll start with verse one. There's lots of trigger words here that are really important. Now I would remind you, so he's not telling them something new. Don't come to church every week expecting to learn something new. Most of what you need to hear is stuff you already know, but you might be starting to forget or you're not appropriating it. You're not putting it into practice. So you need to kind of bring it out of the library of your biblical knowledge and allow it to have influence on the circumstances of life today. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which they didn't reject, but he says, which you received, in which you, present tense, so you received it, in which you present tense stand. You've staked your life on it. You're trusting in it. You're hoping in it. And by which you are being saved. That's interesting language. I'll touch on that in a moment. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. And then this last statement, unless of course you believed in vain, unless it was all fake and inauthentic and you didn't really believe it. So what is Paul doing here? Why do we need a reminder? We've already had it preached to us. We've received it. We're standing upon it, but we still need a reminder of this because life is incredibly distracting. Would you not agree with me? It's incredibly distracting. I don't care if you've been saved for 60 years. Every once in a while, you're going to get distracted. You're going to get bummed out. 
You're going to be distressed, depressed, repressed. It's a difficult life to live in, difficult world to live in. Well, just as physical pain, if you, if you hit your, your thumb with a hammer, if you cut your finger with a razor, if you're sunburnt, if you've just been bitten by a dog, if you have abdominal pain, you tend to get folk tunnel vision. That's all you're thinking about. You're not thinking about your responsibilities. It's like everything, bam, ah, that's all you're thinking about. You're not like, ah, I got to do grocery shopping. Uh, has the dog been fed? Wonder how the kids are doing. What's the preacher going to preach on on Sunday? No, you're just thinking about that, that pain. That's true of the physical world. It's also true of the rest of life. If your marriage isn't great, you're probably not thinking about your next vacation. If you've just been diagnosed with cancer, miscarried a child, had a loved one die, it's probably going to dominate your thinking every hour of the day. So Paul is saying, take your mind off of this for a moment, and I want to remind you of the gospel. Not just as a distraction. It's not some sort of a psychiatric trick or psychological trick. Just think about Think positive thoughts about something else. No, there's something else about the something else that relieves and fixes our pain. So we can't afford to have tunnel vision, to just think about, man, my life is bad right now. That's all I think about. You need to think about the gospel. So let's just break this down a little bit. He says, you've received it, which means you didn't what? Earn it. You received it. The gospel is a gift, not earned, not merited because you're better than the next guy. You've received it as a gift from God. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you think you've earned it, you don't have a gospel worth believing. You don't have a gospel that will help you work through life's issues. That's just another False religion that says you, you can earn your way into heaven. We've received it by faith. When we receive it by faith, we are justified, meaning declared righteous in the eyes of God. One of the distinctives of biblical reformational Christianity is the notion that justification is gifted, not earned. Not by your effort, but by the efforts of Jesus not by your works, but by the works of Jesus. Not by your sacrifice, but by the sacrifice of Jesus. Not by your blood, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, we stand in it. And then it goes on to say, our being saved, so hold fast. So what this is teaching us, oftentimes when we think of salvation, what, we've, what we're erroneously doing is we're just thinking about the moment of conversion. We're just thinking about justification. And we're like, of, of course, we don't, we don't earn that. But the word salvation is actually a series of events in our lives, starting with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are, sanctif we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but what, what we call our sanctification, meaning our progress in Christ-likeness, is also part of our salvation, as is our resurrection, as is our future 
in the eternal kingdom of God, where we are glorified. Our bodies are resurrected from the dead. We're made new. All of that from beginning to end is our salvation. So justification, super, super important. But when it talks about a standing in it, what that's referring to is our sanctification. We're standing, like every day we're re-believing, we're re-trusting, we're recalibrating, we're refocusing on Christ. We're obeying, we're confessing. All of the things that we do that moves us forward in our Christian life. Justification is monergistic, meaning it's one-sourced. It comes from one, that's God. It's not like, well, I give a bit, God gives a lot, or we go 50-50, we're equal partners. No, that's all of God, but sanctification is synergistic. We have a Bible, we have a church community, we have the Holy Spirit. We are blessed by God and by others, but we're also getting up and saying, you know what, I'm gonna read my Bible today. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna ask forgiveness. I'm gonna get rid of sinking thinking. We're making choices. Choices we couldn't make before we were saved in our justification, but we can make now. So don't just sort of let go and let God and think, well, yeah, I'm an addict, but God must be God's will. God hasn't fixed it, so it must be his will. No, you have to work with God as you progress in sanctification. So what I'm preaching today, if you're listening, you're now responsible for to put into practice. And you will be equipped by God's grace, we'll see this momentarily in the text, to progress in sanctification, but you also have responsibility to make choices along the way. And the fact that we're standing in it present continuous tense means it's progressive. So in that sense, we are being saved, not re-justified, 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 reborn again, reborn again every day, but we're being sanctified and so we hold fast to it. But then there's this comment, unless you believed in vain. So a failure to continue in sanctification is to demonstrate that your faith is fake, that your faith isn't authentic faith. So many Christians throughout the last couple hundred years in particular have wrestled with the question, can I lose my salvation? And some of you have come Come to us, I bet you, from churches that have said, yes, you can lose your salvation. And some have come from churches that say, no, you cannot lose your salvation. I could teach on this for hours because it's a fascinating topic. Well, my response to that based upon this text is that you can lose what appeared to be salvation. That's true. If your faith proves to be false, if you apostatize, if you become Judas, everybody thought Judas was one of the boys, right? But clearly he wasn't a true convert. And over time, his lack of sanctification proved that he wasn't a believer. So when it says, if you hold fast, if, conditional, right? If you hold fast, doesn't mean that justification is conditional. Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Hard word in the middle, will. You didn't start it, you don't keep it. Christ starts it, Christ keeps it. He who began a good work in you will, not might, not may, 
will carry on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So this, if you hold fast, does not mean that your justification is conditional, but that it is authenticated by belief and perseverance. So if you fall away, you have proven that you weren't a true bona fide justified person in the first place. Because justification has necessary results. And those necessary results are if you are in Christ, in justification, you will become more like Christ. You might do a little bit of this along the way. But folks, let's not make the mistake of thinking that because we're really, really, really sincere, we're saved. You don't think Muslims are sincerely sincerely believe in their faith? You don't think Hindus sincerely believe in their faith? Many of these people are more sincere than some Christians are. So your sincerity is not what authenticates true saving faith. Your sanctification, which necessarily follows your absolute belief and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is what authenticates your salvation. So this is why many people, when they hear the eternal assurance crowd speak, they're like, I don't know. I don't don't know if I feel comfortable with that because what that sounds like is, well, I can do whatever I want now. I'm, I'm justified so I can sin all I want. That's false doctrine. Those of you that have come from saved and lost churches are correct to criticize proponents of eternal security that say, well, because you made a profession at a Billy Graham concert, conference or you walked an aisle and said, I trust in Jesus Christ, that you can then be an adulterer, a liar, a drunk, a fornicator, because after all, I got my ticket to heaven. Folks, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can guarantee you that. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that remains alone. It necessarily and inevitably bears fruit. It bears fruit. The gospel is supposed to continue to save us. Look at verse two. That's the idea there. It continues, you're saved, positionally you're saved, but it continues to save you by sanctifying you. Not that it re-justifies you, but it continues to sanctify you as we hold fast. So one of the necessary hallmarks of a true Christian is they will persevere to the end. They will persevere to the end. Now, in contrast to that very solid, very foundational, very blessed gospel, when many people experience pain in life, they go to what I would call the coping industry. And there's a big industry for helping people cope with pain, a big industry. And the industry really is just a, will help you get by industry. Doesn't fix it, doesn't ultimately relieve it. It's just, we're gonna help you get by industry. It's kind of like chicken soup for the cold, right? Chicken soup does virtually nothing, nothing really to cure a virus, but it's warm. You get to hold the bowl and kind of stick your face over it. Smells good, if you can smell, depending on what you're sick with. If you can taste it, depending on what you're sick with. It's, it's warm, 
It's just easy to chew. You don't have to work the jaw muscles very hard. It's soothing. It's like a back rub, a belly rub. <laughs> not, that I could aff- not that I can imagine that being pleasurable, but someone rubbing your belly. Would- I don't know, it was a guy that's just so weird to think about, but it doesn't, it soothes, but it doesn't fix. And that's, that's what the coping industry does, the secular coping industry. So the world's approaches include the Bell Let's Talk Day. Talk about what? Just talk. But talk about what? Just talk. That'll help you with your mental illness. Here's a drug that'll take the edge off. Why don't we take you on a vacation? What you need is some more sunshine by the sea. Or we have an early retirement plan for you. You're stressed out. Or you should join a secular support group. Now, folks, I'm not saying that all of these things are necessarily bad. Not necessarily bad. But there is only one message that can truly transform and heal us, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's substance to it. There's historicity to it. There's true reality to it. The gospel is God's solution to the pain and difficulties of life, including our greatest enemy, which is Mr. Death. So when in pain, what we really need to do is to reconsider, to remind ourselves of what Christ has offered and accomplished, what we have received, or if we can't do that, we've believed in vain. If the resurrection of Christ and your pending resurrection doesn't alleviate fear in the face of death, you've believed it in vain. You're not appropriating it. This is why it boggles my mind how many people who, are, who claim to be Christians live in, have lived in abject fear for most of their lives. They're literally scared to death of death, which holds no power over them. So this is where you have belief disconnected from life. This is where you have a whole group of Christian people that believe in truth. Okay, there's a body of truth. Check the boxes. This is what we believe. We believe in the resurrection of Christ, our pending resurrection, but it's not transformed them. It's not being lived out. It's literally Sunday morning only truth. It's not transformed them. Truth is always meant to transform us. This is why as a preacher, I will commit to you. I will commit to you. I will never get up and just preach truth. This is what the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Okay, let's pray. Call the worship team. I want to preach truth that transforms you. That doesn't mean that I can do the transforming, but I want to help you to connect the dots and see how truth matters. Every jot and tittle of the scripture is there for a reason. And it's meant to bless and sanctify you and glorify God. There's no throwaway lines in the Bible, folks. There's no spare chapters. There's no filler material. It's all meant to be believed to transform our mind, but then to to leak into our hearts and our hands and to transform us from the inside out. So how does this happen? How does the gospel heal us? And what is the gospel? Well, the gospel most broadly preached is about the absolute lordship of God and Christ, and the Holy Spirit over all of creation from beginning to end. 
and that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and his true kingship and kingdom will become increasingly obvious in the eternal order of things. But in terms of our relationship with God, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross at Calvary, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his resurrection, his resurrection, which conquers death, our greatest enemy. And our need to surrender and admit our sins and put our faith in Christ and in Christ alone, I might add, is the heart of the gospel. When that happens, God spiritually transforms us and we begin this process of sanctification, looking forward to our glorification in the eternal kingdom. So that's core to the gospel. But one aspect in particular is the death and resurrection of Christ. So as the passage continues, verse three and following, for I delivered to you as a first importance, meaning first priority, what I also received. So this is really important. When we preach the gospel, we preach it because we've first been transformed by it. We're just messengers. We're not making it up. It's not my message, not Aaron Rock's gospel. I'm just preaching to you what was preached to me, which was preached to generations before me, which was preached to Paul, which Christ preached. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with scriptures. Notice twice there in that passage, it's anchoring the work of Christ in previous revelation from the apostles or the prophets rather who, who wrote the Old Testament. The resurrection is a historical fact. It's more factually verifiable than most historical facts you were taught in a history course from the Greco-Roman era. It's a historical fact. Don't let anybody tell you. If someone says it's just a fable, say to them, well, you got to prove that because we have tons of evidence. We've written books and books and books on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. So it's historical fact, but it also transforms us. It is, as I previously mentioned, doctrine for life. For life, for the here and now. How so? Well, folks, the resurrection is God's announcement that he reigns supreme over death and damnation. Over divorce and disease, over disappointment and depression. How do you like those six Ds, by the way? Everything. It's God's announcement that he reigns supreme over all of these things. All things that were given life because of the fall, Genesis 3, because of sin. All things, selfishness, rebellion, pride, lust, lies, stealing. All those things that were given life because of mankind's fall into sin and which bring death have received a public notice from Christ in his resurrection. That they are weak, but he is strong. That they are temporal, but he is eternal. The resurrection then does not just guarantee victory in the future, it declares it now. That Christ has conquered them. He has sentenced them. Often you go to court, you go through the court trial, you're sentenced. There might be a bit of a delay before you're locked up or executed. We're living in the delay. They've been sentenced. Soon they will be consigned to damnation forever. 
The resurrection, again, does not just guarantee victory in the future, it declares it now. So by informing and transforming faith, we've been informed, we've heard it, we've received it, and as we allow it to transform us through informed, transformed, or informing, transforming faith, we now hold fast to the reality of the resurrection, believe that its power has changed our status before God. This is what it means to be justified. Do we still sin? Yes. You'd be hard-pressed to find a scripture in the New Testament that says that saved people are sinners, that that's their title. Do they still sin? Yes. But that's not our, that's not our identity anymore. We still sin because we're not fully sanctified. But it's actually inaccurate to call a Christian, you're a sinner. No, you're a saint in the eyes of God. Does that mean you're perfect? No. But your, your position has been transformed from sinner to saint. You're no longer a rebel. You're a friend of God. You're a friend of God's. So this is wonderful that our status has changed. We were rebels without a cause. Now we're righteous people with a cause. It is biblically true, but again, I want to harp on this. It's also transformative. The question is, are we allowing it to transform our lives, really? That's what it boils down to. Are you allowing the resurrection to transform the way you respond to pain and suffering? Does it actually make a difference or is it just kind of a cool idea? Good orthodox doctrine. Or does it, has it been lived out practically in your life? It serves then to calm our fears, to fill us with hope and joy, and to set our eyes on things to come. No person in their right mind enjoys, to, enjoys suffering. And obviously we try to avoid it. We try to extend our lives and have blessed relationships and avoid challenges if we can but we cannot afford to be terrified by it. Again, I've said many times with regard to death, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm mildly concerned about the method. <laughs> Might be painful. Who knows? Not looking forward to that. But I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not trying to die. I'm not trying to get out of here as fast as possible. But I'm not, I'm not afraid of dying nor should any believer because we know what's on the other side when we close our eyes in death. By the way, we don't believe in soul sleep. We believe in instantaneous being in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We look forward to that. And are there some human doubts at times that might leak in? Yeah, sure. Momentarily, we're not fully sanctified. But in the big picture, faith means we know where we're going. Let's sit around chewing on our fingernails. <laughs> Am I, am I sure? Am I not sure? Where am I going? What's going to happen? We don't have to live our lives with that lack of assurance. We can have assurance, assurance of things hoped for. So we must believe this, recall it regularly, even med meditate upon it. And the pain of this world will grow strangely dimmer in the light of Christ's glory and grace. After all, think about it this way. If the future is entirely a win, entirely imperfect a win. It's perfect. God's kingship will be acknowledged by all, including sinners. A few losses in this life will become much more tolerable. If somehow, if somehow a football team, a hockey team already knew they were going to be world champions 
Well, a few losses along the way aren't really that big of a deal. You know, you know the Stanley Cup's gonna be yours. Now that's a, I don't wanna be reductionistic. We have so much more to look forward to than the Stanley Cup. But the idea is, is that we know the future is gonna be an entirely win because Christ has already secured the win. So why let the events of this world rattle? Why do we let them rattle our cages so much? Steal our joy, strike fear into our hearts, cause us to cower, run. We, we don't need to. We know, we know the end of the, we've already read the last chapter in the book, so to speak. So again, does this really work? I, I don't want you to come to church and think, oh, this is all, this is all pastor talk. You know, it's like Christians over the centuries are at times hypocritical. And we use words that sound good. But we don't necessarily mean them. We say, I'll, I'll pray for you. And then we don't, or bless you. We don't even know what that means. So I don't want to say, hey, you know, the gospel's wonderful. The gospel's awesome. And then, well, what does that really mean? Well, it means that the resurrection transforms our lives because immediately after Paul starts to list all the people that were transformed by it and to whom Christ revealed himself after his resurrection, verse five, and then he appeared to Cephas, which is um, one of the names for Peter, you know, Simon Peter. You remember he appeared to him after he had uh, kind of denied Christ three times. Talk about living in guilt. Talk about living in guilt. So he appears to him, has a difficult conversation, but ultimately restores and blesses. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That, that's sufficient to, uh, you get 500 eyewitnesses in a court case and you will win. It's more than sufficient. It wasn't like two guys that happened to be his best buddies that co-owned a business with him and had reason to sort of lie. 500 believers saw him after, most of whom are still alive. So when this was written, maybe in the 60s AD, people could read this letter and then take a little trip and talk to many of these people and say, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? Is this true? Though some have fallen asleep, which is a biblical word for the death of a believer, because it's just really falling asleep and then being awake with the Lord. Then he appeared to James, one of the early disciples of Christ, probably the one that was his, by human standards, his half-brother. Then to all the apostles, including Thomas, who doubted Christ. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That, that's a difficult metaphor because that means a child that was born by way of um, a miscarriage, a premature born child. But it's a suitable analogy because again, it's like I, I, was, I unexpectedly was converted. I should have died. Miscarried children die. But the shocking thing Paul is saying about my life is that even though I died and even though I'm so, such an unexpected recipient of grace, he also appeared to me. This is verified by the statements that follow. For I am the least, so it's like, what does that mean? For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What was Paul's previous occupation? He was a Pharisee who was commissioned and more than willingly volunteered to go and point out faithful Christians, put that guy to death, put her to death, put that guy to death. You, 
If I dropped dead tomorrow, how many of you would feel comfortable if the church elders came to you in a month or two and said, hey, we found our new lead pastor. He's a former serial killer, but he's been saved. Right? You'd be like, well, I'm glad he's saved, but I'm not entirely sure. I want a guy with blood in his hands, counseling my family, preaching. It's just, you know, it's a little weird. Well, Paul had an incredible impact upon the Christ upon the early church and even our church today, not because he did the murdering, but he presided over it. So this is why he's like, I, it's like a miscarried child. You wouldn't expect it. I'm the least worthy. But what was it that became operative in his life? Grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. <clears throat> And his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, I didn't just get saved and then sit on my hands. I want to be a blessing. I want the grace that God has bestowed upon me to be useful. Do you want to live a useful life? If you're a Christian, do you actually want to live a useful life? Or do you want to just be saved and useless? Maybe even a, a hindrance, a stumbling block to other people's faith. Maybe you're, you're parents. You have children. You, you're a recipient of grace. But you're just dawdling through life like the rest of the world. Your kids aren't receiving from you the blessings that you owe them. Nurture, discipline, introducing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe God has gifted you as a speaker, an encourager, a servant, with the gift of generosity, wisdom, insight, discernment, and you're just riding everyone else's shirt tails. It's wrong. Let's take the gift that God has given to us and bless others. How did he do this? He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. All the people that were saved before him, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So even in our sanctification, we must attribute it all to God. Never to self. We don't want to be attention seekers in any way, shape, or form. You should be a good example. People should look to you as a good example. But you shouldn't need their attention or affirmation to continue to move forward because, you know, I, there's nothing innately in me that can bless you. But... If I allow the God, God's grace to operate in my life and sanctify me and make me more like Christ and walk in humility, and if I could show a little bit of that to others, I will bless you. This is how it works. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. In verses five to seven, we have that list there with the many who would encounter the transformational grace of God and his grace towards him was not in vain. It actually made a difference. So here's what you got to be thinking about now. Am I actually making a difference for Christ? So in a world filled with fear and confusion, am I being a grace to others by bringing clarity to the confusion and chaos, by speaking truth? In a world that is filled with fear and bitterness, am I actually putting hope on display? Or am I acting like everyone else, terrified, angry, bitter, hopeless. Faith means something, brothers and sisters. 
In verses eight to nine, he speaks of his own conversion, how unusual it was, but the victory of God in saving this wretched man. The resurrection can save the least likely, the least likely. And it was all because of God's grace. Again, even the work that he did afterwards was rooted, founded, nourished by, watered by God's grace. And so grace saves, but guess what? Grace also sustains. It saves us and it sustains us. Effort doesn't save and effort doesn't sustain. Effort-based religions don't save and effort-based Christianity doesn't save. Grace saves and grace sustains. How much grace does God have? Does he store it in buckets in heaven? Does it have an expiry date on it? Is there a limited amount of it? Sorry, I ran out. I gave it to your buddy today. You're gonna have to wait till tomorrow. Efforts like that, you can only put so much effort in. You just run out of energy. But grace, which is sourced in God, is eternal and infinite, always available when we cry out for it. And frankly, it's made available to us. Sometimes we don't even want it because it's grace. So we can ask for it, but we also often receive it. And then when we receive it, we're grateful for it. So the center of the gospel isn't our resurrection, but it's actually Christ's resurrection. It's Christ's resurrection. It is proof of victory. It's his resurrection that guarantees ours. It's his resurrection that guarantees hope and victory. So we need to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, does the gospel make a difference in our daily lives? We have to move beyond orthodoxy to practice, to transformational Christianity. Take that which we know to be true, which we've staked our lives on, and allow it to impact the way we think, the way we act, and the way we feel. The Christian cannot be sanctified who has forgotten or fails to hold fast to the transformative power of the gospel. Your sanctification will come to a screeching halt if you lose sight of the transformative power of the gospel. But when you refocus on it, when you're reminded of it, when you hold fast to it, when you stand firm in it, when you're thankful for it, when you know how wretched you are apart from it, you hold fast to the transformative power of the gospel, God will continue to bless and transform you in ways that are unimaginable to the glory of God. So remember it, hold fast to it. Go to the gospel when you're in pain and in all the days in between and let it sanctify you so that you might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ to his honor and glory. 